Chapter 10 of Where the Path Breaks. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Where the Path Breaks by Captain Charles de Crespigny. Chapter 10. It seemed to Denon that he knew the day and even the moment when his letter reached Barbara. He was working on her portrait to which he gave every instant of his spare time between dawn and dusk. A strange, elusive impression of a girl it was, a girl in white looking through a half-open door. She stood in shadow, but leaning forward a little so that her eyes and hair and a long fold of her dress caught the light. Denon's portrait work before had been done with charcoal or colored chalk, such mediums were too crude, however, for this labor of his love. He was trying pastels and had expected to make many false starts and failures. But he had only to open the door to see the girl standing just outside, looking straight at him with smoke-blue eyes, under level brows and warm shadow of copper beech hair. So, after all, he could not go wrong with his work. He had but to paint what he saw, and the picture took life quickly, as his book had taken life, because it was easier to go on than to stop. One evening he was straining his eyes for the last ray of daylight, when a blue flash seemed to leap from the eyes of the portrait. He could hardly believe that it was only an illusion of an overworked optic nerve. It was as if Barbara had somehow found out about the portrait and compelled it to speak for her, to tell him something she wished to say. "'She has got the letter,' was the thought that compelled his mind to accept it. And then, "'She will answer at once.' The difference in time between Santa Barbara and Gorston Old Hall was about twelve hours, and fifteen days ago he had posted his letter. It was just possible, even in wartime delays, that it had reached her, he calculated, as the eyes of the portrait held him spellbound. When the picture was finished, he took its measurements and ordered a glass to protect the fragile colors, delicate as the microscopic plumes of a moth's wing. But he could not content himself with any design for a frame. He went to shop after shop and even traveled as far as Los Angeles, in the hope of finding the right thing. But nothing was right as a frame for Barbara. The handsomer a frame was, the more conventional and banal it looked in Denon's eyes when he tried to associate it with her. At last he decided to carve out the frame with his own hands, from the beautiful fluted redwood of the great sequoias of California wonderful ruddy wood with an auburn sheen and a wave running through it like that of barbara's hair the idea seized him and brought extraordinary delight he took three lessons from an astonished cabinet maker of whom he was able to buy the redwood and then with confidence and joy began his work in two days it was finished and the picture in place it was almost as if he had built a house for barbara and she had come to live in it, and look out of the door at him. The portrait was half life-size, and rimmed in its rich-fluted setting of redwood a thousand years old, 
it was of exactly the right length and shape to hang on the door of child Barbara's bedroom, his bedroom now. It was for that place he had planned it, because in these days he had lost the unbroken privacy of his first weeks at the Mirador. John Sanborn had been discovered, and without churlishness was unable to remain any longer a hermit. He went nowhere except for the long solitary walks he loved, and refused all invitations. But he could not lock his gate against the three or four kindly persons who ventured with the best intentions to dig him up and keep him from being lonely. His memory portrait of Barbara was too strikingly like her in its strange impressionist way not to be in danger of recognition by some old acquaintance of her childhood. Besides, a picture of his love, even if unrecognized, was far too sacred to be seen by stranger eyes. In Denon's bedroom the smiling visitant was safe. No one but himself ever went there. And with the heavy frame firmly clamped to the door panels, the effect of the girl gazing out into the room was thrillingly intensified for Denon. Thus hung, the portrait was opposite his camp bed, and when he waked at sunrise, Barbara and he looked at each other. The picture had been in its place for a day when her letter came, a very thick letter, and with the envelope uncut, he went up to sit before her likeness and read what she had to say to John Sanborn. "'You are a lifeline thrown to me,' he read. "'I grasp it, thankfully.' I wonder if you will think me a silly, sentimental creature if I tell you that even before I opened your letter a strong golden current seemed to come out through the envelope into my fingers and up my arm. If you were just an ordinary friend, a man living near me, I shouldn't be able to say this to you or tell you that I put your letter like a talisman inside my dress so as to keep it near me and not lose the sense of its influence after I had read it three times over. But to you, at your distance, I can tell many things that are sacred, because I'm only a shadow to you, not a flesh-and-blood woman, with all my faults and foolishnesses under your eyes to be judged. I'm a shadow to you, and I don't mind being a shadow, because it gives me freedom and liberty. Yet I mustn't abuse that liberty and deceive you, my friend so far off and so near. I'm afraid that I have deceived you already and asked for your sympathy, your help, under false pretenses. Perhaps if you'd known the real truth about me and my life, you would have written me a terribly different letter. Whenever I am feeling the comfort of it most, suddenly that thought pierces through me, very cold and deadly, like a spear of ice. I want the comfort, oh, how I want it, and so, to make sure whether I have the right to take it or not, I am going to tell you everything. You will not be bored or think me egotistic. I know you well enough, through your book and your letters, to be sure of that. When you have read this, you will be able to judge whether I can dare to claim the consolation you offer me and whether I have a right to comfort myself with those thoughts, 
about the only man I have ever loved or shall ever love. Because I have given another man a place in my outer life. What thought comes into your mind when you read those words, cold-hearted, horrible, disloyal words? Do you slam the door of your sympathy in my face and turn me away? No, please, please don't do that. Anyhow, don't do it quite yet. Wait till I've explained as well as I can, if any explanation is possible. I want you to know all the truth and understand entirely, so I must even tell you a thing that seems absurd to tell. It would be absurd if it were not for the thing's consequences. When I was fourteen, my mother and I came away from America, where we'd lived ever since I was born, came to live in Paris, though she is English by birth. A cousin of hers, an officer in the British Army, was on leave from his regiment just then. He ran over to Paris to amuse himself, not to see us. But as he knew we were there, he called. He was twenty-seven, thirteen years older than I, and I thought he was like all the heroes of all the novels I'd ever read, in the form of one perfectly handsome, perfectly fascinating man. He treated me like a child and teased me a little about being a flapper, but that only made me look up to him more, because he seemed so high above me and wonderful and unattainable, like a prince. Perhaps he saw how I felt and gloried in it as great fun. He gave me his picture in uniform, and I worshipped it humbly, as a little eastern girl might worship an idol. Soon he went to India, but I saw him once again, nearly two years afterwards, when I was almost sixteen. I had never forgotten my prince, and after he came back he flirted with me, rather cruelly, I think. When I realized, just as he was saying good-bye, that he'd only been playing a little, it all but broke my heart, what I thought was my heart. I used actually to enjoy being miserable and telling myself I should never love again, just as if I'd been a grown-up woman. I was even angry with my frivolous self when I found that I was getting over it. For I did get over it very soon, and before I was seventeen I could look back and laugh at my childish silliness. That was over five years ago, for I am twenty-two now, and all my real life has come since then. My mother and I were poor until a little while ago. She is very good, really, and very charming, and absolutely unselfish, so I'm not picking flaws in her if I have to explain to you that she was selfish for me. Being English herself, she has always thought, in spite of marrying an American and going to live in America, that there's nothing quite so good in the world as the best kind of English life. By the best kind, she means life among the aristocracy, in country houses, and in London in the season. She made up her mind before I was eighteen that she wanted me some day to marry a man who could give me just that life. I used to laugh then when she mapped out my future. It seemed only funny, 
not vulgar and horrid to talk about marrying some vague, imaginary man for his title and money. But when Mother took a house in London, a better house than we could afford, and went into debt to buy me heaps of lovely clothes, and fussed and schemed to get me presented and dragged into the right set, I began to be ashamed. Before we had been in London very long, I met a man who was different from anyone I had ever seen before. From the first night when we were introduced at a dance, I could think about no one else. I wish I could make you understand what he was like, for then you would see how a woman who cared about him could never stop caring, even when he was dead, for no other man could at all take his place. He wasn't handsome, not even what people would call good-looking, I suppose, and he didn't talk very much. But somehow, when he came into a room with lots of other men in it, all the rest simply ceased to count. He was very tall and a great athlete. Maybe that was one thing that pleased a woman, for we do like strength. We can't help it. But there was so much more about him magnetic and sincere and splendid, which would somehow have made one feel that he was near, if one were blind. He could do all the things other men do better than any of the others, yet he had thoughts such as none of the others had. One knew that a woman could have no moods or imaginings beyond his power to understand, if he cared enough, because he was fine fine in the French meaning of the word, as well as strong. I shall never forget the first time he looked at me. We had just been introduced. There was something wonderful about his eyes. I could hardly tell you what it was. But one suddenly felt caught and drawn into them, as into a vortex in deep still water, clear and pure, though dark. I saw that he rather liked me, and even that meant a good deal from him, because he was a man's man, and didn't care much about laughing and talking with lots of girls. Perhaps he was shy of them. Mother saw, too, that he was interested, and that was what began all the trouble, because he was exactly what she had set her heart on for me. She wouldn't leave him alone to make up his mind whether he really wanted to see more of me or not. She tried to force him to want me. She did all she could to bring us together. She left no stone unturned. To me, it was sickening. I don't know whether he saw it or not, but I was so afraid he might, and be disgusted with us both, that it made me feel absolutely ill. I could never be at ease with him. It was hateful, hateful that he should think my mother and I were trying to catch him because of his title and money, and his beautiful old house which everyone admired and talked about, and heaps of women wanted. After we had known him for a while, mother hinted and hinted for us to be invited to stay at his place. It was almost like asking him to marry me. At least, I felt it was. He was obliged to get up a house party for us, so that we shouldn't be alone, for he had no mother or aunt or anyone to entertain for him. 
we and the others were invited for a week, but the day everybody was going on somewhere else, mother was taken ill, so she and I had to stay. I was sure she was pretending, though she wouldn't confess, and I was almost wild with misery and shame. I loved him so dreadfully. For days mother kept her room, and when she came down she seemed so weak that of course he begged us not to think of going. A fortnight more passed like that. Then the first rumors of war began, and we were still with him when war was declared. That same day, out in a garden by a lake we both loved, he told me he cared, and asked if I would marry him before he went off to fight. If only I could have been sure that he did really care, and hadn't been drawn on by things mother had said, I should have been divinely happy. But I wasn't sure. I wasn't at all sure. And the shame and suffering I felt, and the fear of showing that I adored the ground he walked on, when perhaps he was only being chivalrous to me, made me behave like a beast. I was just a sullen lump. I said, yes, I would marry him, if he was quite, quite sure he wanted me to. And then mother came out of the house, and straight to us, as if she had known exactly what was going on and could hardly wait to make certain of him. He had to go so soon to rejoin his old regiment and leave for the front that he got a special license, and we were married when we had been engaged just two days. If he did love me, and looking back I almost believe now that he did, for he was too true as well as strong to be trapped by any woman, I must have hurt him by keeping him so at a distance. He couldn't have understood, not even with the wonderful power he had of seeing deep into people, all the way through to their souls. But now I have explained to you about mother, you will understand. We were hardly alone together, he and I, for more than five minutes at a time. I always made some excuse to escape. I was afraid if I were with him for long I should break down and be a fool. And I thought if he didn't love me I should certainly disgust him by crying. Mother had told me often, when she was training me to come out in society, that a man must love a woman very much not to be irritated with her when she cries, and her face crinkles up and her nose gets red. After our wedding he was with me for about an hour, but mother was with us too, for half the time, and even when she left us alone in an ostentatious sort of way, I could think of nothing to say to him, nothing at all. There were a thousand things in my brain, will-o'-the-wisp things, but my tongue could not catch up with them. I let him go, and then it was too late. Three weeks afterwards he died, saving the life of a friend. So now you see what your book meant to me, very specially, and why I begged you to tell me whether you had found out these wonderful things by going down close to death yourself. You know why it wasn't enough even when you answered as you did at first. 
I longed to hear whether you thought he would know the truth about me. Your answer to that question is all I hoped for, and more. But I don't deserve it, for I am married now to my cousin, the one I so childishly made an idol of when I was a little girl. You are shocked. You think of me with horror. You are sorry you have troubled with me at all. When you read at the beginning of this letter that I had given another man a place in my life, you didn't dream that I had married him. But so it is. Eight months after my love died, and my youth died with him, I was my cousin's wife. I won't tell you much about that. Only this. A month after I was a widow, this cousin came to England, wounded. My mother and I were helping the nurses as best we knew how, in the private hospital of a friend. My cousin arranged to be sent there. He wasn't seriously hurt, and we saw something of him, of course. He was immensely changed from the old days. Because he might have been a stick or a stone instead of a man, for all I cared, he was piqued, I suppose. He told mother that he meant to make me fall in love with him and marry him when the war was over. And when he had gone back to the front again, she repeated what he had said to me. You see, she didn't know how I had loved the other, so she was surprised at the way I took the message. I couldn't help showing that I was angry because he had dared. He wrote to me later, more than once, but I didn't answer his letters. Months afterwards he was horribly wounded. As he had no near relatives, he asked to have us sent for, to Boulogne. He was supposed to be dying, and we couldn't refuse to go. We never thought of refusing. It seemed to do him good to see us, and he grew better. His one wish, he said, was to die in England. We brought him back, a dreadful journey. He grew worse again on the way, and we were obliged to stop at Folkestone for two weeks. Then we got him to London to see a great specialist for spinal operations. The surgeon said that such an operation as would have to be made, if any, might kill and could not cure. At best, if he lived, my cousin would be an invalid for the rest of his life. Still, without an operation, he must surely die. It would be just a question of a few weeks. My cousin had to be told this by someone, and the surgeon thought the news of such a verdict had better be broken to him by a person he cared for. Mother felt unable to bear the strain, after all she had gone through. She isn't strong, and since last August she has changed very much. It seems as if, now that I'm provided for, as she says, she had let herself go. That day, when she asked if I would tell my cousin what the surgeon said, I was frightened about her. She trembled so much and suddenly turned so deathly pale, with bluish lips and blue circles round her eyes. Without an instant's hesitation, I promised to speak to my cousin. But I didn't realize what the scene would be like, or I could hardly have faced it. 
In his weakness he broke down, as I never saw anyone else break down. He said if there was no hope of his being made into a man again, what good would it bring him to be cut up and hacked about by a surgeon? Besides, the specialist was the most expensive operator in England, and he couldn't afford such a costly experiment. The simplest thing would be to put a revolver to his head or take an overdose of some sleeping draft and so be out of his misery once and for all. I was unnerved and begged him to keep up hope and courage, not to think about the money, but to let us lend it. My beloved one left everything to me, and I was sure, if he were alive, he would wish me to make that offer to a brother soldier. I felt, even while I was speaking, that if I were in my cousin's place, I should refuse the operation because I'd rather die than live on as a helpless invalid, a burden to myself and others. But it wouldn't have been human not to encourage that poor sufferer to endure existence, if he could. So I tried my best, and I was very excited and worked up by the sight of his emotion. Suddenly he spoke again. He said that without an incentive to live, he wouldn't trouble about the operation, and the only incentive he could possibly have would be my marrying him, before he went under the anesthetic. Besides, he couldn't accept money from me when he saw no way of repaying it, unless I were his wife. I would rather he had killed me than forced me to make such a decision as that. Perhaps if I'd been calmer, I might have dared to refuse, realizing that his love of life was very strong indeed, and that when he had thought things over, he would surely consent to the operation without the horrible sacrifice he asked of me. But I was at the point of breaking down myself. I couldn't see anything clearly. It seemed to me that I had to save a life, if it could be saved, at any cost. And then my future mattered so little to me then. The thought in my mind at the time was that to be the nurse of a broken soldier who'd given himself for his country was at least a mission in life. As it was, I had none left. Also, it may be that deep down under my conscious thought was another, that according to the surgeon's expert opinion, my cousin was most unlikely to live. Why not give him the incentive he asked for, to face the ordeal and let him die happy, since that one thing seemed to mean happiness for him? Almost before I knew what I was doing, I promised. Then it was sprung upon me the next day that if the operation were to be done at all, it must be done soon. I had to keep my word. And what followed was a nightmare. A second wedding by special license. A bedside marriage with a dying man. Words of farewell and the surgeon and anesthetist arriving in their white robes like undertakers. When I heard that he had come through the operation with his life, I knew instantly what wicked hope must have been hiding in my heart. A sickening disappointment crept like poison through my blood. 
I had to do my duty, though, and live up to the obligations I'd undertaken so recklessly. After a few weeks, Mother and I brought the invalid home, to the home my beloved one had given me. My life seems to have been one long series of mistakes, but I don't think I've sinned enough to deserve the punishment I have to endure now. It is too much for me. How am I to bear it and keep my soul's honor? The memory of my love, his ways, and his looks follow me from room to room of his house and walk with me by the dear lake and in the garden paths. I might have found peace if I'd left myself a right to live with that memory, but I haven't. I've put a man in his place, a man whose body is helpless as that of a little child, yet whose soul is a giant of hateful jealousy. He is jealous of the dead. I hadn't guessed a man could be like that. I must tell you no more. I must try not to be cruel or utterly disloyal both to living and dead, and to my own self-respect such as I have left. I have kept my love's name. I bargained for that before I promised my cousin to marry him. It was the one possession I couldn't consent to give up. If you will stand by me as my friend after all this that I've told you, if you can say that, in spite of everything, I have any right to the comfort you've given, address your next letter to Lady Denon. Yours gratefully, from the heart, whatever your decision may be. B.D. End of chapter 10 Recording by Roger Moline